Mark chapter 10. In your Bibles, I'll be a little more brief since because of the letter and the prayer request went long. We'll maybe shorten it up. It'll be out of here by 8, I promise. Mark 10. And we're going to read a few verses together. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to get some of these some of these texts that I think the Lord's been leading my heart to and questions that people have had and so forth, and this is certainly one of those. Verse 14 says this, But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. Saw what? Well, verse 13 says they were bringing little children, parents and others, children, to the Lord. And the disciples are saying, no, 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 no. A lot of modern day guys are doing that today. No, not with the children. And it says Jesus was much displeased. And said unto them, Suffer, that means allow the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Now we all know what this means. This means that unless you have simple faith, childlike faith, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And until you come to that point of having childlike faith, you can't be born again and you can't go into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So we know what it means from this and all the other Gospels. That's what the Lord is teaching them. So we also know that children can therefore come to Christ in faith. Jesus himself said, of these little ones which believe on me. Right? There are pastors today that will not baptize children. There's actually a church not far from here that will not baptize anyone 10, 11 years of age because they're, quote, too young. Verse 16, and he took them up in his arms. This is a precious scene, I think. He took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them, prayed for them. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Father in heaven, please help us tonight to understand the teaching, the power, the meaning of this text. And an understanding of Father to have your heart. We can see the disciples at this point did not have your heart. When it came to children and the gospel, and I pray we will, in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 10 is an amazing chapter in the New Testament. It's remarkable. Actually, it's remarkable. Get it? Huh? See what I did there? Anyway, this story, by the way, is repeated in three of the Gospels for, for impact. And this remarkable chapter is not amazing to me just because it includes the little children that the Lord Jesus took up into his arms and said, of such is the kingdom of God. And that it also includes the story of the rich young ruler, which is an incredible story in itself. But also because both of these events are placed together. Here and in the Gospels. They are both placed in succession one after another so that both of them involve, if you will, opposite ends of the truths of soteriology. That is, a little child can find salvation in Christ. And so can an upstanding, wealthy member of society. And the glory of it is this. 
This text reminds us that in both cases, no matter who you are, salvation is the same. Simple faith of a child, and unless this rich young ruler, this upstanding member of society, has the simple faith of a child, he can't be saved either. Salvation is the same. Not surprisingly, therefore, beloved, both of these stories are misused, misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied. Maybe in your minds you've read this and thought, wow, Jesus told him to sell everything. That's how you get saved. Maybe in your mind you've been confused about what happens here. And in part, this is why I want us to look at this tonight very carefully. Folks, never forget that Satan is always, always, and relentlessly on the attack against the truth of salvation. From day one, Satan has always attacked the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ. Whether it's by adding works to grace, which is the broad road that Jesus talked about. So many religions in the world, Pastor. No, there's only two. All of those who say you get to heaven by earning it, and the little narrow road that says you only get to heaven by grace. There's, Jesus said there's two roads, not a bunch. It's either, and you can know what? You can go all the way back, and whether it's adding works to salvation or whether it's being this, uh, bringing up some straw man about cheap or easy grace or changing the clear meaning in the Bible of repentance or confusing discipleship with the new birth, they are not the same. Whatever the means, Satan, ever since Cain slew Abel, think about that for a moment. Cain brought the works of his hands. Abel brought a lamb. God accepted the blood of the lamb because of what it pictured and rejected his, the fruit of his labors. And ever since he slew Abel, the works crowd has always, always persecuted, marginalized the grace crowd. So look again with me, verse 17, you find the word good is used no less than three separate times in just two verses. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, asked Jesus, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Eternity. What a scene, by the way. Here's a man, think about this, beloved, he's running that wasn't commonly accepted in the first century in Judaism. A man, a grown man, a man of, of royalty, if you will, a ruler running like this. And then he kneels down. He gets down. He says he, he, he kneels there. And then he says, good master. He compliments the Lord Jesus. And he believes in eternal life. This is not a man that you have to convince that there's an afterlife, that there's a heaven or a hell. He knows that. He believes there's eternal life. He's running to this scene. He kneels down. He is earnest. He is seeking. He is somewhat discerning. And of course, he's religious. The other Gospels call him, quote, a ruler of the Jews. He's a ruler. The only rulers that the Jews had in those days under Rome were synagogues. He was a ruler of a synagogue. And here's this man, and he asks Jesus, what do I do? Remember the Philippian jailer to Paul? What must I do to be saved? And Paul told him. So why is it that what Paul told him is not what Jesus tells him? Matter of fact, it's not what Jesus tells a lot of people in the Gospels. Look at it, verse 18. And Jesus said unto him, why 
callest thou me good. What? Wait a minute, what? If you had a man run up to you, and he's coming so fast because he knows that you know the Scriptures, and he kneels down before you and he says, tell me, what must I do to be saved? Good teacher, good pastor, good Sunday school teacher. Is the first thing out of your mouth, why are you calling me good? It's the first thing out of his mouth, Lord's mouth, look at it. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. Now think about this for a moment. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus answers this man with a question. Now, there has never been a greater expert on the human condition, the human heart, the human soul, no better psychiatrist, psychologist, you, whatever you want to call it, than the Lord Jesus himself. The Bible says that Jesus knew what was in man and needed not that any man should tell him. He knows what's in your heart, my heart, every heart of every person, anyone watching now by live stream, he knows exactly who you are and what's really in your heart. So that the Lord Jesus, who is the supreme expert on the human mind and the human soul, he knows exactly where you are and exactly what you really need. One of the best illustrations of that is found in the way that Jesus witnessed to different people in different situations. Look, folks, just go through the Gospels. There was not a one-size-fits-all when it came to the way that the Lord Jesus brought to them the same Gospel, the same childlike faith, but He dealt with people in different ways. The thief on the cross... Think about that for a moment. The woman at the well. Zacchaeus. The woman caught in adultery. And this rich young ruler. All of them had the exact same need for the exact same gospel. But not all of them were dealt with by Christ in the exact same way. And the reason for that is that the Lord Jesus knew their individual hearts. He knew where they were and where they were coming from. I mentioned the thief on the cross. Jesus knew that when the thief spoke up at that moment, he knew that this ruler, that this thief rather, already believed, A, that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was God, B, that he himself was guilty and a sinner, guilty of the crimes he was dying for, and C, that his cry was sincere. You know, six hours hanging on the cross next to the Son of God, watching Jesus suffer and die and listening to every word come out of his mouth, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Six hours of that, this man knew who Jesus was. And what are you going to say to him when he says, Lord, remember me when you go to heaven? The only thing Jesus said to him was, today. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's how he dealt with the thief on the cross, because he knew him. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus also knew this ruler. And you know what he knew? He knew three things. He knew, number one, that he did not recognize Jesus as God. He called him good master. Number two, he did not recognize himself as falling short of the glory of God, as a sinner. 
And number three, he did not have the simple childlike faith that was just demonstrated prior to this moment in the same scripture. So consequently, our Lord dealt with this man in a totally different way than he did with the thief or the woman at the well, or by the way, even Nicodemus. And that is why the key to this whole story, if you want to know it, is found in the word good. This word good is repeated again three times in just two verses, four times in two verses in the other Gospels. Good master, he said, what shall I do? The other Gospels say, what good things shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you calling me good? Why are you throwing around this word when no one is good? Here it is, except for God. If the word good is the key to this story, then this statement about God alone being good, only God is good in this sense, that's the door the key fits in. In other words, now follow this carefully, Jesus said something here that no psychologist, no psychiatrist, no modern television preacher would ever say. He said that no man is good No person is good except for God himself. Now, I want to ask you a question, and you think about it. How many people do you know who really believe that? Who actually believe, go out in the street today, who actually believe that nobody is good? What do you mean nobody? Nobody? Mother Teresa wasn't good? Abraham Lincoln wasn't good? My own precious saintly grandmother wasn't good. How in the world can that be? That's not true. How many people in the whole wide world right now really believe the statement that Jesus made to this rich young ruler, why are you calling me good? He he says, he's a rabbi. You're a good rabbi. You're a master. You're a teacher. You're a good one. And he says, no, no, why are you calling me that? When nobody is good except for God. Folks, I can assure you that it's Nobody, nobody agrees with that statement who does not understand and grasp, first of all, the depth of what Jesus said about a child's faith. For of such is the kingdom of God and the truth of salvation by grace alone and through faith alone. This man in our text clearly was feeling good about himself. For one thing, the Bible says he was young, Young men are the most self-assured people in the world. The other gospel say is rich. People who have riches, especially at a young age, such as this, they seem to think that, that they've earned it somehow. Money does not buy happiness. It buys jet skis, someone said. I saw that in a bumper sticker. And then he's respected. Wealth has a way of translating into power, and power translates into pride he really believes that this in himself he's kept the entire law as you'll see in a moment from his childhood so that he was so convinced that he didn't hesitate he didn't even falter to tell the lord jesus quote the good master that he couldn't think a single thing that he lacked in his spiritual life nothing at least to keep him out of heaven He was, by anybody's standards today, certainly by that day, he was, quote, a good man. So, folks, again, while he came to Jesus feeling quite good about himself, notice how he left Jesus. 
Verse 22, and he was sad. He was sad at that saying. What saying? Well, you'll see in a minute. And he went away grieved. In Luke, it says he went away, quote, very sorrowful, sorrowful, sad, grieved. In other words, by today's standards, Jesus was a terrible psychologist, a lousy counselor and mediator. You see, you're not supposed to make your patient or your client feel bad about themselves. They already feel bad. They come in, you're going to make them feel bad? You're supposed to make people feel good about themselves. Churches today advertise. They actually put out mailers. They actually advertise that you'll never feel guilty in their services. Don't worry about feeling. You, you will not come here and leave sad or grieved or sorrowful. They'll never do to you what Jesus did to this young man. Basically, is what churches are saying. You want to talk about a guilt trip? Wow. Guess what Jesus says to him? And the expectations that Jesus put on this young man, demands that gave him so much guilt. Verse 21, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. So you can't say that Jesus made him sad and grieved because he just didn't care about him, didn't want to take time for him. No, he loved him. That's a great statement, is it not? It's beautiful. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And said unto him, you are a victor, not a victim. No, no. And said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross, and follow me. Whew. Folks, he told him, now this is how you're going to go soul winning? Knock on a door. Would you like to go to heaven? Yeah. Okay. See this house you got? Sell it. All of it. Give it away to other people, poor people. He told him to sell everything and give everything away. No wonder he's so sorrowful. He had a lot. You know, what a billionaire says when he's sad? He says, I feel like a million bucks. <laughs> Just kidding. So he felt like a million bucks. But the whole purpose for that, follow this carefully, is obvious, at least it should be. It wasn't so the man would sell everything he had and give it away to the poor and earn his way to heaven. Obviously it's not so that here, Jesus is here. Go buy, go buy yourself with your good works and, and give it away your money, a spot in glory. And one of the reasons we know that's not the salvation plan is what he said about these little children before this and the fact that Jesus never asked anybody else to do that. Even Zacchaeus, he was a rich man. He didn't put those, those requirements on him. Nicodemus, read John 3. He didn't tell him. To, he didn't tell him, what's a thief on the cross going to do? The woman caught in adultery. The woman at the well in Samaria. He didn't say, go back home, sell everything you have. The purpose of this command goes back to the word good. Good master, he said. He thought himself being good, so good, that he had kept all of the law 
including, let me read to you Matthew's account, okay? Listen to this very carefully. Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? Why are you calling me good? Do you know what the word means? Do you know who's good and who's not? You think you're good, don't you? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But, since you're asking if thou wilt enter eternal life, keep the commandments. What's Jesus doing here? Well, listen to the next verse. The young ruler said unto him, Which? Jesus said. Now, he's a ruler of a synagogue. He should have known all of them. Jesus said, All right, thou shalt do no murder. Check. Thou shalt not commit adultery, young man, check. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said, I got all of them except the last one. No. The young man saith unto Jesus, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Wow, what lack I yet? Got all of those, Jesus, good master. Did he? Because here's the thing. If you love your neighbor as yourself truly, you would want your neighbor to have what you have. As a matter of fact, you would just assume your neighbor have what you have as you have it. Meaning that you would be happy to give it away. If that's the next thing you're going to say, give it all away. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think of love your neighbor as yourself like this. You're coming home from town, you're driving into your neighborhood, and you see smoke, black smoke, billowing up. And it's very close to where you think you live. A house is clearly on fire. The fire engines are flying past you. So you drive a little faster. You go around the corner in the road, you get closer to your home, the trucks stop at your street, your heart's pounding. You hurry to your location and whew, you breathe a sigh of relief. And you say, thank you, Lord, that it's my house that's on fire and not my neighbor's. Is that what you do? Is that what you would have done? That's loving your neighbor as yourself. All my life, he says to Jesus, all my life, I've loved my neighbors myself. Well, then how's he so rich? And so by going away very sorrowful, which is exactly what the Lord wanted him to do, if he's going to go away, conviction. Jesus simply proved to this man that he did not keep the whole law. That he didn't even keep the heart of the law. Who does this man remind you of? He reminds me of Paul. Rich, ruler, Self-righteous. And then Paul said, one day, the law said, thou shalt not covet. And he said, it slew me. It hurt. Because I was a covetous man. Had this conversation gone any further, our Lord could have brought out more truth about the man's own heart and revealed more of his failings. Why? Because this man wasn't good. Everybody in Israel would say, that's a good man. He's young, 
He's wealthy. He's sincere. He runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees before him. He calls him a good master. He's a ruler. The young man is a ruler of the synagogue, which is usually older men, elders. This man is not good. Because as Jesus said, there is none good except for God. I'll remind you what Paul said in Romans 7. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. In the flesh dwelleth no good thing. He says, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, you probably know this, but Paul in Romans 3 and Romans 5 and Romans 10, he was quoting the Psalms. It's in the Old Testament book of Psalms that it says that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. This ruler of the, Jew, of the synagogue, the Jews, should have known those scriptures. Now, wait a minute, Pastor, come on. I, that's irritating me tonight. Nobody's good. I know a Medal of Honor recipient, and I know his story, and I was there when they put it around his neck at the ceremony, and he's a good man. I know Mrs. Jordan, she's a good woman. I know that our missionaries are good people. Brother Zam is a saint. All right. Let me ask you a question. The missionary that you can think of right now in your mind, your favorite missionary, think of them. What's good about them? What's good about them? The Greek word good here is agathos. It means, it means virtue. It means inside intrinsic good. So think of the best person you know, the good person you know. What's, what's good inside them? What is truly good about them? Because I will submit to you tonight that the only good thing about anyone who seeks good, seems good, I should say, is what Christ has done in them. Is what the gospel, the miracle of salvation has done inside of them. So that, yeah, I admire Brother Zam. I love him. And everything that I admire about him or Brother Wooster down here or John Morris over there, everything about them is what Jesus has done in them and for them and to them. Everything about them that's good. There's none that doeth good. Oh no, Pastor, that's not true. Next week I'm preparing Thanksgiving dinner with pumpkin pie and all the fixings and homemade rolls and turkey. Not one bit of it had to do with my salvation, the gospel. It was me and me alone, and I'm going to bring joy to other people by doing it. Well, let me ask you a couple questions. Where did you get the turkey? Who made it? Where did the grain come from that made the bread? Where did the pumpkin originate? You made that? Who designed this world so that, in the first place, so that heat and fire would even roast a turkey that tastes so good? Who invented that? You? Who created you in God's image so that you would ever even think of the benefits of joy and the joy of sharing? in that regard. What part of you did that? Folks, there is a reason the Bible says there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Somehow this young man got beyond that. Somehow this young man said, I've done it all, loving my neighbors myself and all the other commandments. I'm clearly good. He uses this word good to a perfect stranger to him. How does he know that Jesus is good? He doesn't even know him. 
So that again, the only good thing about anyone is what's derived from God or imparted by the work of Christ. And you realize that when Jesus said, there's no one good but God, He was really telling that man, first thing you better do is recognize who's good. That if I am good, it's only because I am God. Not a good master. Not a good rabbi. Not a healer. I am God in the flesh. I was thinking about Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Great truth, right? We love that verse. I love it. Everybody quotes it. But I have to tell you that as I thought about it and went on to read the next verse, there in chapter 4, you know what it says? Now, we all know verse 12, we can all quote it, most of us, but sometimes familiar and famous verses have a way of overshadowing the surrounding verses. So here's what it says in the next verse. The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Verse 13 says, Neither is there, it's connected to that verse, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, God is telling us that his word is like a surgeon's knife. But Paul said, the law slew me. It cuts us open. It lays us bare so that all of the thoughts and the intents of our heart, God knows every one of them. God knows that when you're pretending to be humble, you're really full of pride. We are, in the eyes of God, in the light of God's Word, completely exposed for who we really, really are. So there's no facades, there's no excuses, there are no rationalities, there's no moving our sins here to there from one hidden place to the next. There's no pretending that we would be just as glad for our house to be burning down instead of our neighbors. No, he sees that in every heart of every human there is a serpent coiled on the floor. He sees every motive and every aspiration and every thought for what it really is and especially pride. And his divine diagnosis is, there is none good but God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Only God is good. In that, agathos, only God is truly pure, truly holy, truly honest. Only God is truly without sin. And yes, if any of those virtues or qualities are found to abide in us, it's only because He abides in us. So I'll say it again. The only good thing about me, Jim Blaylock, the only good thing about me is Jesus Christ. The only good thing about you, if you're saved, is what Christ has done for you and in you and now does through you. So where is pride? Where is boasting? You know what Paul said? It, remember the three words? It is excluded. There's none. No room for pride. Of such little children is the kingdom of God. And beloved, there is a vital and very convincing message about humility in Christ's statement there that we need to embrace all the days of our life. 
lives. It doesn't mean, listen to me carefully, it doesn't mean you're supposed to leave this place. So, Pastor, you're really a downer. You know, I'm not good, I'm bad, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mean you're supposed to moan and groan about yourself. I don't do that. It doesn't mean you're supposed to lose hope, walk out of those doors with your head hanging down. Oh, woe is me, I'm lowly. I'm Eeyore, cloud follows you. No. Look at these verses. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? Exclamation point. Why is that? Because the deceitfulness of riches, the Bible says. It literally makes you think you're better than you are. Lost people. Verse 24. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Of course they were. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, that's interesting, he calls them children, right? After having just taken little children to himself. How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Look at verse 26. And they were astonished out of measure. What does that mean? It blew their minds. Just, you could just say they were astonished, but that's not what the Bible says. They were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? I bet they were saying that. Who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, they're astonished. They're thinking, we can't be saved. He's better than us. And this is Jesus' answer. Verse 27, Jesus looking upon them said, with men it is impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. In other words, look, we're all sinners. We were all lost. We were all hopeless, enslaved. We were all not good. When I fell on my knees beside my bed at 12 years of age and asked Jesus to save me, I was not thinking, I'm a good dude. I'm a good kid. My mom thought that. He's a good boy. But I was not thinking in that moment, I'm good. With God, all things are possible. It is possible for anybody to be saved. It is possible for anybody who's saved to do and show good through Christ, to be productive, to truly be honest, to live a holy life. So you understand, we didn't say earlier that, that there was nothing good about Brother Zam or Brother John. We said the only thing good about them is what Jesus has done in them and does through them. So that the more dependent and the more submissive we are after we're saved to Christ, the more good things we, there will be about us. And the less dependent and less submissive we are, so once we get saved to the Lord Jesus Christ, the less good there will be in us. That's why when we sing that hymn, sometimes once in a blue moon, we sing, I need thee every hour. That's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. It's true. We need him every hour, every minute, every second. When Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. Do you know what that means in the Greek? Nothing. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing good. Nothing valuable. We read in verse 22 or read it that the young man went away very sorrowful, right? Sorrowful. Do you know that some people that Jesus encountered... In fact, a lot of people, read the Gospels again, you'll find that they went away very happy. They went away full of joy. They went away leaping and jumping and rejoicing. 
What's the difference? In the Gospels, right after this account about the children and about this rich young ruler, the very next story, if you've ever noticed this before, right after the rich man is the story of, Z- of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Zacchaeus was a rich man. Climbed a tree like a little child. Scurried along, followed Jesus. Come to my house. Do you know what the Bible says about him? Luke 19.10 The word about him was not sorrowful, it was he received Jesus joyfully. Why? Because, beloved, when you realize that you're not good, when you realize that you're lost, when you realize or realized that you needed Christ, and He saves you, and He salvages you, and He redeems you, and He begins, begins a good work in you, you become His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Good works. Same word, Ephesians 1.10, you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's why so often on Thanksgiving Day, when we, people praise, the first thing people say, I thank the Lord for my salvation. Because the only good thing about us is Jesus. Put it this way, without Jesus, without Christ, and His coming to die and re- rescuing us from our sin, where would we be? Okay, good? Would it all be good? Will it all end up good? Where would be? Where could we be? None good but God, Jesus said. We are fundamentally dishonest, disingenuous, selfish, ornery people without the grace of God. Here's a text I'm going to close with that I read earlier this week. And listen to these words, and we're going to close. Titus 3. It says, For we ourselves were sometimes at one time foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Really, Paul? That was you? Yeah. That was me. But. But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is how you inherit eternal life. And if these disciples in the Gospel of Mark are ever going to advance His kingdom and His glory, then all of their old habits and traditions and ideas and and preconceived notions about the law have got to fall down before the cross of Christ and the grace of God. You must become like a little child with simple faith. I'm a sinner. So that's why, all right, you say, well, all these different people, he, de- he told this man, you know, go sell all he had. What was he doing? He was telling him, showing him that he's not good. So the first thing we do when we witness to people is say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when I talk to somebody and they say, oh, not me, you can never convince me that I'm a bad person. And I show them the scriptures. No, I don't. Why would I go on beyond that? My only hope is that they go away from me sorrowful. Sorrowful. That they have not done enough or are good enough to inherit eternal life. I personally believe, just personal little Blaylockism, this rich young ruler was John Mark and he got saved later. I don't know that. I have reasons for believing it. But whether or not I know this, I know that when we give out the gospel, 
We are not giving out the gospel to make people feel better about themselves. We're giving them the gospel so that they will recognize they're lost and that they need Christ and that Christ can do a good work in them. And God's people said, amen. Father, bless now the fellowship of your people. Thank you for your word, Lord, and thank you for the, the power of the ministry of Christ who showed us the ultimate soul winner, who showed us how to, how to deal with people where they are and to do so with your word and with truth. May we do the same in Jesus' precious name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.